0: As we stand in the gospel, let us hear the word as it's spoken to us this morning. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teachings he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to the sow, and he sowed some seed, fell alongside the path. And the birds came down and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since there had only no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, and if you would, grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, as Mark continues narrating the story here, beginning in verse 10 and moving on forward. And when Jesus was alone, those around him, the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, when they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and when they have no fruit, no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then while tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold." Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we so desire to be faithful representatives of your people, of your work in this world. Help us to hear, to understand, and then to be faithful to all that you command us, we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray, amen. One of the more uh, dramatic aspects of the scriptures uh, are to- is told in the book of Exodus when the events of Israel's leaving captivity in Egypt are described. Egyptians, as you know, had held the Israelites captive and forced slavery for almost 400 years. And during that time period, Israel had lost much of its identity. And yet, you have when God heard of the trouble and the trauma that the Israelites were under, God raised up a savior, Moses who now then led the people in a massive conflict, a serious conflict, between Moses and Pharaoh, and that culminated in the plagues, the ten different plagues that hit is the Egyptians very powerfully, the last of which was the plague of the death, of the plague of the death of the firstborn. And the Israelites were spared of that only through the very dramatic events of Passover, uh, the blood being shed of the sacrificial lamb, and then it painted along the doorposts. It's a very dramatic scene then, as the Egyptians tell the Israelites, get out of here, just go! And the Israelites pack up all of their things, take things from the Egyptians, or given things from the Egyptians, to go ahead and get on their way. And here this massive band of ex-slaves start traveling through the wilderness, and they get to a spot where they get to the Red Sea, and they're pinned against the Red Sea when suddenly Pharaoh, who has changed his mind, shows up with a massive army. And the army, the most skilled and the most effective army in the world at that time, has pinned into a cove these hundred thousands or so slaves as they are trapped against the Red Sea. And right before... The slaughter begins right before you hear or we would read of this dramatic slaughter of these ex-slaves. Suddenly, out of heaven comes down this massive pillar of cloud and fire, The Shekinah glory of God himself. And the Shekinah glory of God separates the Israelites from the Egyptians and keeps and prevents the Egyptians from coming and slaughtering the Israelites until, of course, that land bridge is opened, the Red Sea is parted, and the Israelites are able to pass through safely on the other side. And before that time period, consistently there is this massive cloud the Shekinah glory of God that is protecting the Israelites. It's separating the Egyptians and the Israelites. And it's a really powerful picture when you read it. And sometimes you can miss one little hint that I think is worth pointing out here. When that cloud settles down there, not only does it separate the Israelites from the Egyptians, not only does it protect the Israelites from the Egyptians, but it also shines Great light, the glory of God is beaming forth on the Israelite side of this pillar. The pillar is powerful and it walks with them throughout their whole journey through uh, the wilderness. And at this point, it is shining forth the glory of God in all of its brightness upon the Israelites so that day and night, the Israelites are walking in the light. But on the other side, it is pitch blackness. A darkness comes upon the Egyptians that separates apart, not just to keep the Israelites safe, but also to have the light shine upon the Israelites, and a great darkness fall upon the Egyptians. The Shekinah glory of God not only protected the Israelites, it certainly did that, but it also distinguished between the Israelites and the Egyptians And what was the separation there? It was not ethnicity. It is not that the Israelites were the good guys and the Egyptians were the bad guys. What separates the one side that is bathed in the light of Christ and the other side, which is in darkness, is the faith. It is faith that had brought the Israelites to the edge of the Red Sea. It is faith that had gathered that people, and we are told that there were some Egyptians there and people of other nations. It is not simply ethnicity that brought that group together to be shown the light of God, beaming glory of the Shekinah blessings of the Lord out upon them. Instead, it is the fact that they have experienced, they leaned into the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and they followed upon the work of our Lord as he led the people out of captivity. The Shekinah glory then functions not just as something that protected the people of God, but it also functioned as a means, a a revelation of those who had faith and those who do not. Those who have faith bathed in God's light, those who do not, who are left in darkness. In the New Testament, Jesus identifies the parables as serving that exact same purpose. Many of us know that Jesus spoke very frequently in parables. He loved that methodology of teaching, and we're going to look at that in a little bit. But the purpose, why does he use the parables? Here in this text, we are told why. Now, this follows what we looked at last week. If you were here last week or if you can read the end of Mark chapter 3, you will see that that technique, that literary technique that Mark uses of writing things in sandwich. That is that he starts a story, then he interrupts it with an entirely different story, then he finishes the first story again, and the point is that the two stories kind of work together, that you understand them more. So here you've got a sandwich again. You've got the beginning of the parable, the parable which is being spoken out, verses 1 through 9. Jesus tells this parable. Then you have this break where the, Israel, uh, sorry, where the disciples then come and kind of speak to Jesus onto the side and say, hey, why do you talk in parables? Why do you use parables the whole time? And then after Jesus explains why he uses parables, he goes and he fulfills and talks the rest of the about the parables. And so that middle section there is a description of why we use parables, and once you understand the middle section, it helps you to understand the outer section, the description of the parable itself, the parable of the sowers. So what I want to do is I want to start by looking at that middle section for a little bit. Why does Jesus use parables so frequently? Parable, the very word, uh, in many of you can catch the similarity with parable or something like that, or parable with parallel or something like that. A parable is is something that is laid alongside of for comparison. It's a a quick story. It's an illustration. It's a, a pithy saying It is anything along those lines, and there are somewhere, depending on how you count them, somewhere between 40 and 60 parables that Jesus tells in the New Testament. And Jesus is a master parable teller. He's not the only one that tells parables, incidentally, in the ancient Near East. There were other people. The Pharisees themselves spoke in parables sometimes. But when you line them up, it is very clear that Jesus is a master parable teacher. Now, a parable then functions sort of as an illustration, as an example, a a cute little story or something like that. But usually a parable differs from just an illustration or a story in that the meaning that is there is often surprising or that there's a twist, there's something unexpected that occurs in a parable. So a parable is a short story, usually it's got very homey illustration, it's taken from everyday life. And it has this little twist in it somehow, that really highlights something or points something out. So that's the essence of a parable. But why does Jesus use parables so often? Look, if you would, with me at verse 11. Jesus gathers those around him, and the, the 12 ask him about parables. In verse 11, Jesus said to them, "To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything." Is in to, the, to you, who's the you that he's speaking of originally? It's his disciples. It's those who have come to him. Remember at the end of chapter 3, it is those people who have come and sat at his feet, his mother, his brothers, is the way that Jesus references them. These are my mother, my brothers, my sisters, the ones who have come into me, the ones who have expressed faith in me. They are the ones, now what happens to them? To, the, to them, to you are given the se- are given this is not something the disciples are not somebody that they don't have a greater grasp on things because they're more intelligent they don't have insight into this because they happen to spend more time doing bible study they don't they're not special because they bring something unique to the table rather the ones that are given the secret of the kingdom of god are given that secret. In other words, this is something, this is an action of God himself. This is an action that, the, that separates those on the inside from those on the outside. Just like the Shekinah glory separated the Israelites from the Egyptians, so here we have the parables working kind of like a metal detector that run over somebody. The, uh, the parables are given to you so that you might know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Now, the secret here is not something that you... It's a mystery. It's not something that you can figure out on your own. Uh, The insight into any biblical mystery or secret is only known when it is revealed. And so Jesus is saying here, look, the parables function as that Shekinah glory that separates, that identifies those who are inside. And those who are outside, those who are inside, are taken by the secrets of the kingdom of God. What is the secrets of the kingdom of God? It is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. And our faith that embraces that work. The parables that Jesus uses so often function specifically to identify those who have been given the blessings of God so that they might understand the parables. Wisdom, discernment, and embrace of the kingdom of God. But to those who are on the outside, they hear, but they have no ears. That's why Jesus ends in verse 9. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Of course, his audience, all of his audience have ears. At least most of them you would assume. They all have ears, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Those who have faith Those to whom have been identified in the parable as embracing the kingdom of God, that is who the parables are set to distinguish, to separate those who are on the inside from those who are on the outside. And again, I cannot stress enough, do not think that this separation is based upon something that identifies those on the inside as special or those on the inside as having something good that's going on. It is those on the inside who have been given by God himself the secret of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. What separates those on the inside from those on the outside? It is faith. It is the response to the parables that Jesus speaks. So the parables here in Jesus's mind, when they say, why are you using parables so often? He says, because it's A visible way of distinguishing between those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. And if you've been reading the Gospel of Mark with us as we've been going, you know that that's a major issue right now. There's a massive crowd that is following Jesus, and yet many of them are not part of the inside. No matter how much they crowd around Jesus and how much they're attracted to his celebrity. Jesus says that's not what identifies someone as being on the inside. To those who are on the inside, it is given the mysteries of the kingdom of God. To them who are on the inside, is given the blessings of faith and dependence upon Jesus Christ. We can see this played out then in the parable itself. The parable setting is pretty straightforward. If you have your Bibles, you can see in verse 1, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. This is that consistent setting that Jesus has been experiencing here frequently throughout the book of Mark. He often finds himself at the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And there was a very large crowd gathered about him. Once again, you can see the crowd here functions both as a great opportunity. There's lots of people here. So Jesus can communicate the word of God. He can speak about the kingdom coming, uh, and he can speak about his authority and his blessedness. So he's got a great opportunity with the crowd, but the crowd also is an obstacle. Uh, You you do get the impression, and in Luke chapter 5 it's it's explicit, the crowd is driving Jesus into the water. There are so many people that they literally push him into the water. And so what he does is he gets on a boat, pushes out a little off from sea, and speaks from there. There's a couple of spots uh, scholars who travel over to uh, the Galilee have been able to find a couple of places that are kind of like a natural amphitheater. Uh, the picture being that somebody who could speak in a very good voice could be at one spot and literally communicate his voice to thousands of people. Uh, just the shape of the hills and the coves and stuff like that. Uh, so they've got a pretty good idea of exactly where this would have taken place. Jesus is in the water, on the boat, while he's teaching. And notice that all of the people, the crowd, are on the land, it says here in verse, two, uh, verse 1, at the end of verse 1. Uh, that word land is the same word as soils. They, so Jesus is sitting in the water teaching the people from a boat, and all of the people are there standing in the soil. And, of course, that prompts the parable that Jesus tells. Now, this parable we understand more than most of the other parables, uh, largely because, of course, Jesus himself interprets it for us. Uh, So it's kind of easy to get the interpretation of this parable right. Jesus does it. And you can see the interpretation begins in verse 14. The sower sows what? Don't miss this. The sower sows the word. Jesus is the sower in this case. And what is he sowing? What is he Okay, so sewing, don't think stitching, that's wrong sewing. Sewing is casting out the grain, you know, you're, you're tossing out the grain. So what would happen is that you'd have a big pouch around you, and you'd have grain in the pouch, and as you would walk along, you know, we have different ways of distributing grain today, but you would have the field that would be tilled in front of you, and you'd have these big batches of, of grain, and you would be walking along, tossing the grain out, et cetera, et cetera, by your hand. And what is the grain, what's the seed in Jesus' imagery here? It is the Word. It is the Word of God. It is the Gospel message. And here we get again an insight into something for all of us that should be helpful. Well, how does Jesus perceive his ministry? How, what does he think of his job? Is his job here to heal people? Is his job to make people feel good? Is his job to teach them? None of these things are quite right. His job is to communicate the good news of the gospel. And you can see this by where the sower here is sowing the word. He throws out the word, and the word lands on different soils. There's four different types of soils, which corresponds very easily to us, as we read the passage you picked up upon it. Four different kinds of hearers for people who hear the Word of God. And let's identify them. The verse, first one is in verse 15. These are the ones that are along the path. And the path uh, in the, the ancient Near East period, uh, you would come up with a road not laid out by engineers or anything like that, but there would be wandering paths that would wander right through the middle of your fields, and they would be paths because they'd be trampled down, and so the ground would be really hard underneath, etc. And... The picture here is that some of the seed falls upon the ground, and because the ground is packed hard, it can't sink into the ground, so the birds come in and eat it, etc. And Jesus says that is the picture of the hard-hearted man, or the hard-hearted woman. This is the picture of somebody who has heard the word, and it makes zero impression upon them. Immediately, that word is lost to them. Some of you guys have had this experience. I, I can well remember a time where I took a friend of mine to hear a gospel preacher, and we were, I was overcome by this preacher. He was communicating the gospel. He was preaching in such a powerful way. It was so moving to me, and I was mind-boggled that my friend was stone cold to the message, There was just no reception there at all. I I couldn't understand. I was like, didn't you hear what this guy was saying? And my friend was just, yeah, I heard it. And it meant nothing to my friend. There are those who are hard-hearted. And and here I don't mean cruel. Again, we use the word hard-hearted to mean cruel a lot of the time. It's just stubborn. A cold, stony heart. And Jesus says, when the word hits that heart, nothing happens. I suspect for many of us, we have run into those people that have a shallow heart. In verse 16, and those are the ones that are sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root. Um, In the Palestine area, in the Middle East, the, a lot of the ground has only got topsoil about two or three inches deep. Um, it's two or three inches, it's over a big layer of rocky ground across the board. And so here what you have is you've got the seed that is being scattered upon it and it's falling on there. Now, I've confessed this numerous times, I know nothing about farming and so I had to look to check to see and I looked it up. Uh, wheat and barley and the kind of grains in which they were growing The root goes down when when a plant grows. A root goes down between five, uh, between three and six feet, is how deep a root will go on these stalks. If you only have two or three inches of topsoil, you can't get two or three feet down as far as a root is concerned. And so the imagery here is somebody who has a shallow heart, somebody that is easily caught up in the emotions of worship or easily caught up in the good things that they think are going to come to them through Jesus Christ. And they're excited about all the positive things and all the things that, that the gospel might mean to them. And they get really impassioned by it. And I know that you know people like this. And yet as soon as difficulty comes, as soon as any hardship hits them, there's no root to hold them to the gospel message. And so they quickly fade away. One of the great keys about the faith that we have in Jesus Christ is that it anchors us to Jesus Christ so that when the hard time comes, we remain steadfast, anchored into Jesus Christ. But a shallow heart never allows that to take place. Quickly responding and never having the sustaining power Through the difficulties that are faced the third type of soil then is that cluttered heart what i call a cluttered heart or divided heart they are the ones who hear the word but the cares of the world verse 19 the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word okay now these are the folks that hear the word understand the word appreciate the word, they kind of go, okay, I get this. And there's a, there's a response, perhaps even an initial response of faith. Uh, the the uh, imagery here is the, of the soil. So you've got good soil and the seed hits the good soil. And as the seed begins to grow, so around it, the thorns begin to grow. Thorns and the, uh, the thorn root will stay in the soil long past anything visible on the surface. So you can't see anything on the surface. There's nothing to weed initially. The ground looks good. And then you sow the seed upon it. But then the, the wheat, the good fruit begins to grow at the same time that the thorns begin to grow. But the thorns are growing so much quicker that eventually the thorns choke out the wheat, what you have going. And here the imagery is of a cluttered heart. It is somebody that is is legitimately captured and interested in the gospel message, but they have other interests as well. They're attracted to this. They're interested in that. They've got these kind of things going on. And now, one of the things that I have to say is that, as Jesus describes it, it kind of sounds negative: the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. It kind of sounds like the, the the cluttered heart person is attracted, yes, to the gospel message, but there's all these bad things that are crowding out his life. I want to encourage you that I don't think that's the only way to think of a cluttered heart. As a matter of fact, my guess is that most of us here in this room struggle somewhat with a cluttered heart. Not because we're out there pursuing bad things and the pursuit of bad things is chasing away our time and energy that we could be pursuing the gospel but because we're out there pursuing good things. The love of our families, the necessity of our jobs, the effectiveness of being involved in our society, the involvement in good groups and in other programs that take our time, the education of our children, their involvement of our children in sports and athletic events, and all these kind of things take time, and they're all worthy things, but they can all choke out the gospel message. What Jesus is identifying here is that the cluttered heart is not the one that realizes that we all have many loyalties. We are all tied to a bunch of different things, but the gospel message demands an exclusive loyalty to Jesus Christ. Not that we cannot be concerned about other things in this world. We must be, But our concern with the other things in this world happen within the context of an exclusive loyalty to Jesus Christ. And here we have the cluttered heart, the thorns that grow up quickly. And again, so many of us see this. People that we know should be in worship. People that we know should be in Bible study and should be serving in ministry alongside us. But, well, they're doing this now, or they're involved in this, and they're involved in this. All good things, but ultimately things that will choke out the gospel message. Because the gospel message ultimately is that which distinguishes those who are in the light from those who are in the darkness. Finally, you've got the last soil, the good soil or the open soil, verse 20. But these are the ones sown in the good good soil, the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And again, as I've pointed out, I'm not a a farmer, so I had to check in on this, had to make sure that this was the case. Two things to point out. The first is this. An expected yield from your crops, if you were a farmer in the ancient Near East, your expected yield would be somewhere between 5 and 10 times. So every seed that you would plant would produce a, a stock that would have five to ten grains of, 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 uh, of wheat or whatever, barley, whatever you're, you're making. Okay, so five to ten times is about the expected yield. So if you get five times what you toss out, that's good. If you get ten, that's super. Uh, and here you've got, you know, usually around seven or something like that has been an affected year. Here, what is Jesus saying? 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Now, in our minds, it doesn't sound like that, but what Jesus is saying, he's saying something that is astronomical. He's exaggerating so much that he's saying it's millions and millions of return upon your investment. The fruitfulness of those who hear the gospel message is such that it cannot be identified with any other source Christ himself. How is it possible for one grain to give a return of 30, 60, 100 fold only by the manifold blessings of Jesus Christ? Once again, Jesus' parable is stressing that this is not the blessing of the soil. It's not making sure that you're the right soil one way or another. It is the work of Jesus Christ that does the overwhelming blessing of the 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold return. But secondly, and this is a little bit harder to pick up, all of these verbs in the parable, as Jesus describes it, are active verbs. They're all present verbs. In other words, they're not past tense. They're present. The good soil is not those who heard the word, who believed the word, and then who produced fruit. The good soil are those who are presently hearing the Word of God, are presently believing the Word of God, and are presently producing the fruit that Jesus asked for. Now, why do I point that out? Because I think then that these soils don't just represent the first time you heard the gospel or when you eventually embraced the gospel and that that's when you were the good soil. Before that, you were part of the path or you were part of the rocky soil or something like that. No, I think what Jesus is saying is that every time you hear the Word of God, every day that you read the Word of God, you are approaching it with either a hard heart a shallow heart, a divided heart, or an open heart. And most of you know that we spend our days, our lives, bouncing between those four points. There are times when I come to church and I have a hard heart. There are times where the word means nothing to me. There are times when the word is there but I've got so many other things that are on my mind and I can't foc- I can't be attentive to it. There are times when the Word settles in and it produces a fruit in my life that can only be described by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I beg you, every day that you hear the Word of God, every time you hear the Word of God, be aware that the word is falling in your heart, and you will be, it will find a solid, rocky path. It'll find shallow soil. It'll find a cluttered heart, or it'll find that open heart where God then can work his amazing work of grace in your life. How do you get that heart? We get that heart in the exact way that the parables set up this sandwich principle that Mark has for us. We come to the Lord and we say, Dear God, grant to me the mysteries of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, we pray. Dear Father, we ask that you would indeed bring the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ into our lives, the kingdom of our Lord that would settle upon us and reign powerfully in our lives. Lord, we recognize that there are many upon us each and every day that are negligent, that allow the cares of this world or the shallowness of our own hearts or the stoniness of our own hearts to blind us to the power of your word. Open us anew to that message each and every day we pray. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask. Amen.